This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, so, yeah, look, we, we knew this was going to be contentious, and it certainly has proven to be so. Uh, proposed new K-6 Alberta curriculum. Uh, just to give you an idea, though, of maybe where things stand and where this is all going, we got a statement out today from the Métis Nation of Alberta calling on the government of Alberta to redraft its proposed K-6 curriculum, citing monumental concerns about the Euro-American colonial undertones. Now, they're calling on the Minister of Education to redraft a curriculum in collaboration with the Métis and other Indigenous groups to address concerns about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples principles and to allow the government to uphold the recommendations from the Truth and Reconcili- uh, Reconciliation Commission. So I think this is going to be a big problem for the Alberta government, and we've seen uh, pushback along these lines over the last couple of days here. So I want to talk a bit about maybe what's what's lacking in this new curriculum or where there's some uh, concern about some of these changes. There's also some some different kind of concern being raised today about how this is all being handled as uh, some of these proposals that have been released seem to have been edited or, or changed in the last couple of days. And some aspects of this uh, appear to be copied and pasted, uh, maybe off of the Internet, off of uh, Wikipedia. So it does raise some questions about uh, how this is all being handled and, and how much thought has really gone into designing these uh, these changes. So someone who's been uh, keeping a close eye on all of this and uh, has much to say on uh, what's uh, been released and what's unfolded the last few days is uh, Dr. Carla Pack, who's a professor of elementary education in the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta. Dr. Peck, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Good afternoon. First of all, I mean, how much do we make of what, what seems like some, some weird edits uh, over the last uh, day or so regarding some of what's been released or whether some of this has been cribbed off the Internet? What, what, what have you been able to make of it? I, I was so surprised last night when this was brought to my attention um, on you know, various social media platforms. So I went to verify myself, you know, has, have sections been changed? And sure enough, I identified one section had been changed. I didn't go have time to look through 52 pages of the social studies curriculum and compare, mm-hmm. you know, every single line. But if one has been changed, it certainly raises questions about our other sections being changed. What's so troubling about this, I mean, there's so many layers to this. I mean, this happened, these changes were made 24 hours after the Minister of Education stood in front of cameras and stood in front of Albertans and boasted that Alberta was going to have world-class curriculum. And then these edits get made without telling Albertans that they're doing the edits, without actually tracking the changes so that it's very transparent about what's being changed. 
And to me, this demonstrates that they actually know the social studies curriculum is not good and that uh, they are trying to, as has been done before with many of the, the curriculum issues that have come up, they're like scrambling to try and recover a situation that in my mind isn't recoverable. Um, uh, they've, at, when they launched the curriculum, they put out a survey to invite feedback from anybody in Alberta who wanted to provide feedback. That feedback is going to be essentially useless because now people are going to be having looked at different versions of the document. So what do you do with feedback when one person looked at the document on tw- May or March 29th and somebody else looks at it a few days later and the content is actually different? Um, so, I mean, it's just hugely problematic, lacks transparency, and indicates a real uh, weakness in my mind. Yeah, yeah, it does seem problematic. Um, but let's let's talk about the general direction here because this is going to represent some significant changes to to the social studies curriculum uh, for K to six students. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mentioned the you know the the concern raised by the Métis Nation of Alberta. I think a lot of experts in this field have, have raised some similar concerns. So, w- w- by the way, what did you make of that um, statement today from the Métis Nation of Alberta? Actually, it's the first I heard of it. I've been been uh, um, busy in other uh, calls this morning, uh, so I, w- I look forward to reading the statement. I would say that I'm not surprised that the Métis Nation has raised concerns because um, although some additional Indigenous content uh, has been added, when you compare it to the drafts that were leaked to another news organization in November of 2020 when there was a really large public outcry about um, statements in that document, you know, that children shouldn't learn about residential schools until they're older and and so on. Um, you know, I think there was some band-aids sort of placed on top of the curriculum to try and address those concerns, but in my mind it's still very, uh, very much a token effort and uh, does not... W- reflect what I have, my understanding that I have learned over time and continue to learn from Indigenous elders and colleagues and friends um, about what Indigenous knowledges are, what an Indigenous perspectives look like. And um, what's in the curriculum right now is just simply, you know, content as opposed to uh, worldviews and representing Indigenous knowledge systems. Right. And, and look, and I don't know if there's necessarily, you know, one, one right answer for when and how these, these concepts get introduced in social studies. But I, I do find it odd that, for example, then for, for grade two students, I mean, if they're not going to learn about this, but they are learning about, uh, you know, Christianity and the Roman Empire and uh, Silk Road and uh, Socrates and Charlemagne and the Magna Carta. And I mean, and if, the Black Death. Well, in the Black Death, <laughs> yes. So, I mean, if, if all of that's appropriate at grade two level, why some of this Indigenous history or residential schools wouldn't be? It's, it's hard to reconcile that, isn't it? It's, it's incredibly hard to reconcile. And frankly, nobody um, in the Depart- or Ministry of Education has been able to provide an adequate response. Um, uh, the content of the grade two curriculum, the content of all of the elementary social studies curriculum is completely uh, inappropriate from a developmental perspective of what children ages 5 to 12 
are, uh, you know, what is appropriate for them to learn. Children ages 5 to 12 are, are very capable of sophisticated thought, but it's got to be done in a way that is pedagogically and developmentally appropriate. What we see in this document are simply lists of information to be memorized. It's, there's no even there are no big concepts that we would want students to learn which is usually what social studies curricula are um, you know centered on deep understanding conceptual learning so when it comes to teaching about residential schools or truth and reconciliation of course we would never want to um, you know as a teacher and as somebody who's now a teacher educator I always think to myself you know my student that I have in my classroom is going to go home and going to go with you know be at home and I I don't ever want to, you know, teach them something that's going to give them nightmares or whatever. And so you have to be so careful about how you do it. But, you know, young kids understand the concept of fairness. If you ever watch kids on a playground where they've either not been included in a game or haven't been able to get the ball from somebody else for a long time and, you you know, it's not fair, it's not right. And so you can build on those experiences of young children to help them think about what is right, what is fair when it comes to Indigenous history that we have in Canada, and and what do we know about, you know, how fair and how right was it for children to be removed, sometimes forcibly, away from their homes, placed in residential schools, not able to see their families, not able to uh, speak their language, learn their or practice their culture. I mean, you can have these conversations with young children in a way that connects with knowledge that they already have and experiences that they already have, but also without traumatizing them and helping them start to begin to understand the concepts. And over time, 12 years of school, you know, that's, you build that understanding over time. I would never expect a six or seven-year-old to understand the complete history of residential schools, but they can start to understand why that might not have been right. Well, and that's the thing, right? Because you know, I think that the concern was that the curriculum didn't address these matters. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of their key recommendations was that school curriculums should. So that would seem to be one impetus for revisiting the curriculum. But that wasn't the government's impetus, it would seem. What, what is the problem that we're trying to fix here then? And how do these changes address that in your view? Well, I think the question about what is the problem that the government is trying to fix by redesigning, in particular the social studies curriculum, I haven't looked at the other curricular areas. I don't know about, uh, you know, if there are concerns with them. I've heard here and there little things, but my focus is on the social studies curriculum. And when, um, uh, during the election campaign and then upon, you know, forming government, uh, the Premier and Minister of Education uh, sort of repeated um, things that were not true about the social studies curriculum, things like that it promoted discovery learning or inquiry learning and that that was, that was a terrible thing and, and it didn't actually lead to deep understanding. And so therefore we need to have what they're calling a knowledge-rich curriculum. And their version of a knowledge-rich curriculum is here are, here's a list of, you know, 50 things you need to know in grade two. 
And um, you don't really need to understand them. You just need to, you know, be able to recognize the name of something. Mm -hmm. And somehow that is going to make somebody an informed person. It'll make them really good at Trivial Pursuit. But it's not going to help them understand people who are different from them. It's not going to help them understand the issues and, and, you know, things that are in our society today that you have to have a deep and complex understanding of in order to be able to solve the, you know, to celebrate the things that are, that are going great, but also to solve the, the issues of, that, that we face as a society. And here's the thing. I mean, this is a big endeavor what the government is doing, and and these kinds of curriculum changes or or overhaul um, should only be done. I mean, you know, once in a generation, maybe ideally, or once every ten or twenty years. So if we're making the mistake here of of actually implementing a curriculum that's worse. I mean, how, how big a, a mistake is that? Well, I, it's, in my opinion, it's absolutely a colossal mistake. I mean, the current social studies curriculum that is being taught in schools today was developed and um, uh, approved by a conservative government. Um, And that is the one that we are using. And it is a very strong curriculum. Are there things that could be improved? Of course. As you teach a curriculum over time, you learn what maybe is not working so well. And so there could be some adjustments made. But overall, the core of this curriculum, which uh, helps students develop an understanding of citizenship and identity, helps students understand um, the complexity of the past of starting with their local community, working towards uh, Canada and the world, um, helping them understand relationship to place, so geographic thinking, all that sort of stuff is really solid. And really, most importantly, perhaps, it is relatable to children. It builds on, on what children, uh, their, their previous knowledge and experiences that they bring into the classroom. It honors that knowledge, and then it helps them grow that knowledge. Because that curriculum was developed grounded in research on how we know kids learn in the social studies and what we know makes a good quality curriculum in social studies. This draft that was released on Monday does not reflect anything, and I mean zero, about what we know from empirical research with children, with teachers, about what makes a good curriculum and how kids learn in social studies. We'll see where this all goes from here. Dr. Peck, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thanks so much for your questions. Great to talk to you. Likewise. All the best. That's uh, Professor Carla Pack, uh, University of Alberta, uh, professor, de- professor in the Faculty of Education, uh, focusing on elementary education. So very much concerned about uh, what we're seeing here in the social studies curriculum, at least proposed at this point. So there's much has been made, as I mentioned, about some of the changes in uh, social studies. But I do want to also ensure that we're talking about how math is taught in Alberta. And this has been a big issue for some years now, because I think we went too far in the direction of, you know, so-called new math or discovery math. And I think it was really to the detriment uh, of students. Since then, though, and since even starting around 2015 or so, when this really kind of became a big issue, I think things started to move in the right direction. And, and maybe this represents another step here. Uh, 
So as mentioned, there are four key themes in this new curriculum, K to six, and we're going to see the rest uh, rolled out in, in the weeks and months ahead. But the four key themes, so literacy, citizenship, practical skills, and numeracy. And so that's really going to shape how math is taught in Alberta. And like I say, I think there's been growing concern that, you know, we've been doing kids a disservice. So joining us for some thoughts on uh, what's in this curriculum and uh, the changes we've been seeing in recent years. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Nun Tran Davies, who is a physician, an author, and also a very vocal uh, advocate for education in Alberta, and someone who's been a big part of the conversation around math curriculum in recent years. Dr. Tran Davies, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good talking, talking to you again, Rob. Yeah. So like I say, I mean, numeracy is one of the key themes in this uh, curriculum, this proposed new curriculum. And I think the, the government is certainly uh, acutely aware of some of the concerns that have been expressed about how math is taught. So based on what you've seen so far, what, what do you make of these changes? Um, I'm actually quite excited about the changes um, because, as you know, I've been working a lot on the matter over the past um, seven, eight years, um, mm -hmm. starting with a petition in late uh, 2013. And at the time, um, with the curriculum written at the time, uh, the new math was that students were, um, you know, allowed to choose a, a personal strategy uh, from after learning multiple ways of adding and subtracting or multiplying, they would choose a personal strategy that works best for them and they carry forth with that um, but of course that weakened a lot of uh, students math skills because it didn't allow for time to practice um, any one method uh, to mastery um, and some kids were of course relying on methods that weren't sound um, in terms of um, doing operations and so we advocated for uh, reintegrating standard algorithms and, and such and yes we've made progress through the years and in in 2014-15, um, the government had um, reinstated the words standard algorithms, but at the time they said that you know students need still use um, can use strategies that may include standard algorithms. Um, but at this point, with a new draft, um, the standard algorithms have been written back into the curriculum, and I think this is a huge step forward for the uh, math education in Alberta because it is moving uh, the education towards a more evidence-based um, best practices in, in mathematics. And so I'm quite yeah. pleased. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, I think a lot of parents are feeling the same right now. And there was a lot of frustration with how maybe we, we had drifted too far toward this, this so-called discovery math. And I mean, that was something that happened over a number of years, right? I mean, it didn't just happen overnight. And that's right. Uh, yeah, the curriculum was written, the previous curriculum was written in 2007. And by the time we realized the consequences of, um, you know, such approaches, um, it, it was to the detriment of thousands of, of children. And so that was part of the reason why the petition was started. And of course, uh, tens of thousands of parents had seen the, the harm and, and um, joined in in the advocacy. And so it's, it's wonderful having this curriculum that now is clear and concise, um, concrete in expectations for our kids and it's comprehensive. Um, it's also integrated, you know, more uh, um, learning of, of fractions, adding and multiplying fractions at an earlier age. And 
um, is just a basically more solid and, and strong curriculum all around. Um, and, and so I'm quite impressed and it's given me confidence that our children will indeed master, you know, the fundamental knowledge and understanding and skills that will help them succeed in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I get the idea and we shouldn't be afraid of allowing kids to just kind of explore on their own and figure things out on their own. And, and that doesn't just apply to math. That can apply in a whole bunch of different That's areas. Right. But, and, and the curriculum, yeah. yeah, the curriculum does not dictate against that. It just yeah. clearly articulates that, um, you know, they, they can explore strategies. However, at the very base of it, at the very minimal, the kids do need to learn um, one uh, and approach the standard algorithms that is yes. evidence-based that's proven time proven effective and most efficient and reliable that will allow them to add or subtract multiplying numbers that are two digits up to uh, 10 20 digits and it's reliable um and, and so creativity is still allowed you know if, if students struggle i'm sure the art of teachings good teachers will integrate the art of teaching to um show them different ways of of going around that but at the end of the day um they at least need to know the algorithms because in math one skill builds upon the other and you need these algorithms mm-hmm. to go on to higher education um, and how a higher math and and so you can't leave it up to chance from a vague curriculum you can't leave it up to chance that the, the students may or may not learn algorithms because if they're missing one step in that um, you know procedure or operation it, it just gives them it, it just weakens their skills and and gives them or decreases their confidence. And it's yeah. just hard to see when, you know, the children struggle and, and say that they hate math, uh, not because of their lack of abilities, but the poor teaching that they are getting. Right, and, and that was from one of the poor, consequences. From a weak curriculum, exactly. from a weak cur- curriculum. sorry. Right, I'm sorry, exactly. I missed yes. that. No, and that, yeah, that's important to point out, right? Um, because... Without the foundation, and we kind of learn the hard way then that that kids get lost. And and sure, it's fine to allow kids to explore and try to figure things out in different ways, but you got to have that foundation. And we really got away from that. And and like I say, we we learned the hard way that that's, that's got some pretty negative consequences. Exactly. No, that foundation is so important. It is the building blocks for for all their future careers. Uh, It's much like, um, you know, for some individuals too i think make sense of this it's like in if you're learning to read and write you need to learn the alphabet you need to learn the correct spelling and then how to use the grammar these are you know rigid rules and how to use the punctuation commas etc right and so if Mm -hmm. you learn these foundational knowledge and skills then it enables you it empowers you to be creative and and to think critically and you know to write um beautiful novels and such and much the same in mathematics if you know the algorithms if you can um, recall, you know, the times table quickly and such. From there, you can you can think about, you know, how, um, you know, race cars and, and such and, and sort of see the beauty of the universe around us. Can, then you can see um, how math applies to everyday life. Um, and, and so having these foundational knowledge and skills just empowers um, our young children to, to be successful in life. And so um, I'm, I'm, yeah, just excited overall um, mm-hmm. by the direction we're going. It may not be perfect, uh, it being that, of course, they're consulting um, the public. Um, 
because I'm sure, you know, there are certain points that could maybe still be refined. Um, but overall, we're moving, you know, in the right direction. We've been building um, in the right direction through the different governments. Yeah. And and like I said, this is the K-6 curriculum, and, and we'll see what the rest of it looks like as that's rolled out. But this is kind of where those foundations are laid. So this is maybe, in some respects, maybe the most important part of it all. It is um, indeed. So, yeah, and, and you kind of alluded to it then. I mean, we there may be still some some minor complaints here and there but by and large have we have we fixed this problem do you feel like you know your advocacy on this has has kind of reached an end that we got what we needed and and we're we're on a good track here yes i can say that i am more at peace now um because i with a clearly well written curriculum there's consistency there so that we know that you know we're we're um reducing the chance of uh, the chance of gaps in knowledge and skills for the children so that you know it, it, the 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 skills are you know, sequentially, uh, sequentially progresses through the years. Um, and, and, you know, if a student moves school, for example, um, one teacher, you know, may be weak in, in teaching math and, and may not address a certain issue, a certain, you know, a point. Um, and if it's not written in the curriculum, the teacher may, for some reason, oh, you know, teachers are wonderful and I have great uh, admiration and respect, but we all have our strengths and weaknesses, even in medicine. And so when it's clearly laid out like that, and if a child's new schools, then we know that that child, uh, that next teacher will know that that child would have learned such and such and therefore built upon that. And so this well-written curriculum um, gives the consistency um, and confidence that we need that the children will um, continue to succeed in, in mathematics because it is so important for, for them. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Tran Davies, appreciate your time today and uh, certainly appreciate all the work you've been doing on, on this issue. I think it's made a real difference. So much appreciated oh, for that as well. Thank you so much. Yes, I am very happy today. <laughs> all right. Well, all the best. Have Good to talk to you again. Day. Thanks for joining yes. us. You as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Nung Tran Davies, uh, concerned parents, a physician, author, and uh, yeah, it turned out to, uh, to be uh, an advocate for proper teaching of mathematics. And, you know, we finally, I think, got to the point we needed to get to. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I get that this fad kind of took hold and, you know, maybe there was some logic behind the idea of, you know, giving kids more freedom and letting them figure out certain things and different ways of getting to an answer. But I think as, as Dr. Tran Davies said, and, and we've heard from numerous other math experts as well, said you got to lay those foundations. And, you know, I get that university math professors aren't necessarily the ones designing curriculums, but they're the ones who are seeing the students come out of high school. And they're the ones who are seeing firsthand how these skills were becoming eroded. So there's no undoing, I think, the damage that, that a lot of this caused, but it's good to see that, at least in terms of mathematics, we're very much on the right track. All right, uh, but off the top in this hour, uh, I do want to talk about where things stand between the Alberta government and Alberta doctors. I I think a year ago, or a little over a year ago, pre-pandemic, the government had a certain plan of action, a certain idea of how this was all going to unfold, and they were prepared to play hardball with Alberta doctors to get uh, a different kind of deal, a different kind of arrangement in place. Uh, I think the pandemic really threw those plans off. Right. I, I think the idea of, uh, you know, being in a war with doctors during a pandemic, maybe even just you know public perceptions around health care really, I think, 
change the, the whole landscape on this. So it's been a different approach, a more conciliatory approach recently from the Alberta government, extending all of branches to doctors, even to the extent of kind of trying to erase uh, history a little bit, denying that there was ever a war with doctors, which is interesting. So just when it seemed as though maybe there was uh, peace in the valley, uh, an agreement reached between the Alberta government and the Alberta Medical Association voted down yesterday. Uh, 53% voting no, 47% voting yes. Uh, so Alberta doctors that decided to vote and, you know, a lot didn't vote at all, uh, wanting no part of this deal. So, so clearly there's still some frustration and some resentment. And where do we go from here? So joining us to talk a bit more about how it got so bad in the first place and uh, what happens now, given the doctors have rejected this deal, and maybe in a way kind of rejecting, you know, the government's approach, rejecting this particular health minister. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Lorian Hardcastle, who is a professor, associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, also at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Dr. Hardcastle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So um, it might on the surface seem a little surprising that the AMA was okay with the deal, but doctors not so much. But you weren't surprised, were you? I wasn't surprised. I think there were really two two big factors going on here. One was the relationship of distrust and hostility, and I think that affected the vote. And then the second factor that I think affected the vote was the agreement itself. And, and there was concerns around the loss of binding arbitration, the caps on the budget. And I think the combination of those two factors led to people voting no. And it also led to the fact that I think a lot of the yeses were very reluctant yeses. So let's let's unpack what's what this is all about, because I think maybe some have assumed that this is about money and, and the government, I think, at various times has tried to portray it that way. And obviously, look, money's a part of this conversation, but there's a whole lot more to all of this. So what, what are the relevant issues here as you see it? Yeah, so so I think the, the the money issue I think is is mostly an issue for some of the family doctors who uh, have seen their practices, some of them cut by significant amounts during the pandemic. And, you know, I think that the public sometimes doesn't think of doctors as sort of struggling, but there are family doctors out there that after they pay their overhead have not been doing well. And so for, for those people, the money is, is significant and it can mean having a practice stay open or, or having to do something else or move somewhere else. And so for those people, I think the money is important and the money in that case links to patient uh, access to care. Um, but for, for others, I think, you know, the, the concerns are the, the instability. I think that a lot of people um, may have been willing to enter into an agreement with a government that had treated them differently. But ultimately, the agreement builds in a lot of discretion for the minister. And I think that people don't want this particular minister to have a lot of discretion because they don't they don't trust what he'll do or that they'll be treated right. fairly. Right. And I think it's an important point and why maybe the minister is more relevant in that sense, because, as you point out, there, there's a lot that, that the minister has control over. And if doctors don't trust the minister, they're not going to be comfortable with that arrangement. And so that includes things like, you know, where, where doctors can work, th those kinds of factors. So there's a lot of potential control here for the minister, isn't there? 
Yeah, there certainly is. The the agreement deals with with the financial side of things and gives the minister a, a great deal of power over over, of course, the budget. Um, but it, but a lot of doctors were also concerned about the fact that it, there is a budget cap, and if that budget cap is exceeded, um, the government can actually withhold payments to physicians. And a lot of doctors were concerned about what that would look like, how it would be implemented, and and that was a, a big factor for many people. So what about for the AMA, though? I mean, you know, I think there's some some issues here for Tyler Shandra going forward, but, you know, is is there a disconnect then between the, the leadership of the AMA and, and Alberta doctors? Is that a potential issue going forward? Yeah, I think the, the AMA is in an interesting position because they're representing the interests of a very diverse group of people. They're representing the, the interests of high-paid specialists, versus rural doctors, those who, who maybe were in favor of this agreement because it doesn't affect them as much versus some of the family doctors who have suffered financial hardship during the pandemic. And so they're representing a very uh, diverse group and, and walk a difficult political line. But, you know, one thing that I, that I think doctors have been frustrated with the AMA about was initially their messaging seemed to be, you know, we know this is a bad deal. It was the best deal we could get. We know you're concerned and, and we just want you to vote on it. But over time, the AMA seemed to to more and more endorse the deal and point out the pros. And I think that that frustrated doctors. And so I think the AMA is really going to have to listen to its membership uh, when it goes back into negotiations with the minister. Right, because essentially we've got the same people negotiating this deal, and they were the, the ones who came up with this deal. They both endorsed it. So it, yeah. it, it makes one wonder, well, how are these same individuals going to come up with something that's, that's manifestly different? Well, I think that the government took a pretty hard line to negotiation. Um, they had a number of deal breakers and, and didn't give a lot. Uh, the agreement really has limited concessions for physicians. I think that perhaps this no vote will send a, a message to the minister that, that he needs to to move closer to the AMA's position in order to get a deal done. And I think he does want a deal done. I think for political reasons, because negotiations are starting with the nurses and there's already tension there. And so I think the minister and the government want a deal done and, and the no vote sends a message to them. And so hopefully they're the ones who, who do much of the budging uh, in terms of, of reaching a middle ground when they come back to the table. Certainly the public messaging from the government has changed. The olive branches, the conciliatory tone, and trying to move away from, from where they were at a year ago. But, you know, in terms of substance, has a lot changed? Yeah, I think that some of the messaging we've heard, particularly over the last week, it's hard not to assume that that was an attempt to sway the vote at the last minute. I think that uh, you know, if the minister wants the public and doctors to believe that he genuinely has turned over a new leaf and is going to approach things more collaboratively, that we're going to need to see some sustained behavioral change um, and perhaps even some financial concessions. So one of the things that the agreement did is it is it gave $200 million for physician programming, including virtual care codes and, and some of those things. And because they didn't ratify the agreement, they don't get that. But in my view, um, that might be the best olive branch the minister could hold out is to say, as a show of good faith, I'm going to keep these, these programs in place, even though you didn't ratify the agreement. 
You know, I, I think in terms of, of Thomas Shandro and, and staying in this position, I think the government is loath to to make that kind of a change, to concede the point. You know, certainly firing the health minister would have other implications. And, you know, I, I think in the midst of responding to this this pandemic, whether we're into a third wave, that might create some chaos in the healthcare system. On the other hand, I don't know, can Tyler Shandro overcome all of this? Where, where does that leave the minister, do you think? It's an interesting position both for him and the government. Uh, a lot of people were calling this morning for, for Minister Shandro to be shuffled out of cabinet. Uh, but at a press conference this afternoon, Premier Kenny said he has 100% confidence in Minister Shandro. And so it seems that he's going to be the one to go back into negotiations. Uh, meanwhile, I think it certainly could have been the case that another minister in that portfolio um, may have been able to, to take more of a fresh approach and start out on a better foot with the AMA. Uh, but that, that doesn't seem to be the case. And it's not clear if, if the government or if the premier trusts Minister Shandro or whether he doesn't want to put somebody else in this portfolio and have another member of his government take take a political hit and potentially have two people not get reelected as a result of, of managing this portfolio. So it's difficult to know some of those behind-the-scenes kind of conversations going on. We'll see what all goes uh, in the weeks ahead. Dr. Hardcastle, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate your input on this. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. All the best. That is uh, Dr. Lorian Hardcastle, associate professor at the University of Calgary in both Faculty of Law and the Coming School of Medicine, and some thoughts on how we got to this point and, yeah, where we go from here. So it puts Tyler Shandro in an awkward spot. Certainly puts, I think, Dr. Paul Boucher in an awkward spot, the president of the Alberta Medical Association. And so these two came up with a, a deal. They both endorsed this deal. Now these same folks got to go back and come up with something different. The top of this hour, though, conversation around child care and looking at child care as um, almost like an economic strategy or as part of a broader strategy uh, to to really help the economy recover. I mean, typically we don't think of uh, child care as an economic issue, maybe more of a, a social issue. But but certainly I think a strong case can be made uh, that the two are very much intertwined. So as we uh, look forward and emerging from this pandemic and what kind of policies we need to encourage and sustain that recovery, maybe this is something that should be a part of that conversation. Some new research out from the C.D. Howe Institute this week looking at how child care reform can be key to post-COVID economic recovery, especially in areas of employment growth and wage growth. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, where this fits in and how we need governments to address it, because I suppose not all child care policies are created equal. Maybe some might be preferable, might be more effective and efficient than others. But joining us on the line here this afternoon, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Ken Bossenkool. He's a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. He is J.W. McConnell Professor of Practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University and president and founder of Sidicus uh, Consulting Limited. Uh, Ken, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Uh, so on this issue of, of child care, I'm thinking of it as part of an economic strategy, I, I, you know, like I said, I think there's maybe a tendency to, to put that in, in the social category instead of economic. But what are your thoughts on that, first of all? Well, it's a good way to it's a good way to talk about it. You know, as uh, the last year has been tough on a lot of people, and I don't want to minimize anyone, but I think 
parents uh, with young children and uh, to a large extent mothers with young children uh, found the child care options, uh, child care options of the last year constrained. And so uh, the question is, how constrained will they continue to be moving forward? Uh, will some of the child care options that were out there, will they, will they have gone uh, belly up over the last year? Uh, what will be the new rules going forward? And so there's a broad concern that as we look at the economic recovery, as we start moving our work out of our homes and back into our offices, what that means for particularly women who are the primary caregivers, we can argue whether that's good or bad, but that's the reality, uh, what, will, what they will be facing as, the, as our economy, move, economy moves out of our homes and back into our offices. Right. So, yeah, this this is very much a relevant issue as we look at uh, employment and we look at, um, you know, getting people back to work. We, we can't really leave this out of the conversation, can we? No, I mean, a lot of the economic growth in the last uh, 15, 20 years has come from uh, the increased labor force participation and in particular the rise in wages paid to women. Uh, men's wages have largely been stagnant, but women's wages have been going up. So a good part of the economic growth we've been experiencing over the last 15 to 20 years has come from the wages that women have been earning. And again, when we look at that from a macro perspective, uh, boy, it'd be great if everyone's wages were going up, but if, if women's wages are going to suffer or if the, the women with young children that have, that apparently have dropped out of the labor for us due to COVID, either if they don't come back or if their wages don't rise or if they have trouble finding childcare, all of those things are going to make the broad economic recovery that much more difficult. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of different approaches. And, and even if you look at sort of conservative versus progressive approaches on this, I mean, you know, typically conservatives have favored a more, you know, direct support to families approach, giving families flexibility. We've seen kind of the emphasis on maybe the, the universal approach from, from the progressive side. And I'm probably oversimplifying a lot of it, but there, there are a lot of different ways, I suppose, to, to really target to help to those who need it, to, to give families different options. So it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of issue, is it? No, and I think it, I think one of the contributions of our paper there's a lot of there's a lot of what I call the childcare lobby in Canada, and they've been they've been pushing for what what we refer to in the paper as this big bang approach, where we've got to move this whole uh, area of responsibility to Ottawa. We got to get Ottawa to fund things across the country. We got to get Ottawa to do more. And and what the paper basically says is there's no evidence that Ottawa taking this over is going to make it any better. In fact, there's lots of evidence it's going to make it work worse. And, and like you said, there's a multitude of different ways to deliver this, and what we really ought to do is look at what we're doing and find ways to tweak what we're doing and make it better as opposed to blow the whole system up and rebuild it from the ground up, which a lot of the child care lobby seems to be suggesting. Let me give you one specific example, Rob, if I could. The current tax support that exists for child care called the child care expense deduction, it's a deduction. It's probably the last remaining, one of the last remaining deductions in our tax system. What that means is you have to earn a lot of money before you can claim it. And not only that, the lower income spouse has to claim it. And there's a whole bunch of rules that basically result in the child care expense deduction being much more generous for people with lots of money than people with little amounts of money. And so if we converted that deduction into a refundable credit, we could change the people who benefit the most from middle to lower income instead of middle to higher income. And I think that would be a big improvement. And that's a central recommendation of our paper to change that deduction into a refundable credit.
Yeah, that seems like a, a pretty straightforward change. But you, you touch on something that I think people do get concerned about when we have this conversation that, um, you know, finding childcare or having flexibility in finding childcare is a lot easier the higher up the income scale you go. And it just it, it seems counterintuitive, even counterproductive in a lot of ways that we would provide support to higher income individuals. And so I think what you're talking about is kind of, you know, moving away from that and, and let's use our resources maybe more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, the tax credit we're proposing, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but basically says if your income is at the bo- toward the lower end of the scale, you can get a refundable credit for up to 75% of your child care expenses up to $8,000. That's a $6,000 refundable credit. And right now, a lot of a lot of families that are in that lower income level, or if one of their spouses is working part time, or or they have a lower income, they don't get anything from the childcare expense deduction. So it would be a big boon to modest income families who are struggling and trying to trying to get two people to work. Uh, if that's what the decision they make, and uh, and this would be much more generous than the existing system. In terms of, of, you know, creating more options or, you know, just creating more childcare spaces. And, and so there's a recommendation here that the provinces do more uh, to increase the number of available childcare spaces. So what, yeah. what do you think is the best way of, of going about that? Well, in the paper, we provide three options. Uh, and basically, we say there should be a pool of money dedicated to building more spaces. And we even argue that if the federal government wants to spend money on this, instead of trying to blow up the system and recreating it, maybe the federal government can have a targeted transfer just for building new spaces. And we could do this in a number of ways. My own personal preference, and look, I've got a co-author on this, Dr. Jennifer Robson. Dr. Jennifer Robson comes from a slightly different political tradition than I do, and so we tried to find compromises in the paper, and where we couldn't yeah. compromise on one solution, we put, we put a couple in there. And my idea was what I call a child care baby bonus, where we give families who have a new child the uh, a voucher that when the baby's one year old, they can use and take to a child care center that would provide up to $5,000 to that child care center and that that child care center could use to build new spaces. Uh, I like that idea a lot. That's I wrote this up for McGill. Uh, Jennifer's idea, uh, not that she doesn't like mine, but Jennifer's idea is that Stats Canada collects a lot of uh, neighborhood spatial data that shows exactly where children are being born, where where there are shortages of childcare, and to do a much more targeted effort at, at sending childcare dollars to areas where there's a where there's a, a known shortage based on this new data set that Stats Can collects. But whichever whichever method we do it, or you know, a lot of money goes just on per capita basis, which is probably the weakest suggestion. But I think whatever route we go, we need to find places that have shortages of childcare. We need to find a way to get, to get more money into those areas and find ways to build more childcare spaces because you can have all the tax credits in the world, but if you can't find childcare, it's not going to do you much good. Yeah. And I mean, in that sense, it, I mean, it almost seems like the province is the middleman here, but but ultimately, maybe it makes sense for the province to be making those decisions. Uh, there's provincial jurisdiction, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, certainly we can see where Quebec has charted its own path, whether yeah. people agree with or disagree. Quebec's not about to, to hand uh, over authority to, to Ottawa on this, nor should the other provinces, right? I agree with that. I mean, and look, 
again, this is the this is the challenge with uh, what I call the childcare lobby. Maybe that's a pejorative term, but a lot of them are saying, "Ah, oh, Ottawa's got to decide. Ottawa's got to run this. Ottawa's got to take this over. The provinces are doing a bad job, so Ottawa has to take it over." And we think that would actually send the whole debate backwards. And I I have no problem saying that we have provinces that are doing much more than others. And I think what we need is to put more money into the system. I think all governments. I mean, I've talked to the Alberta government. I've talked to the Ontario government. Uh, Jennifer has talked to the federal government just to give you a sense of our political traditions. And I know all of these governments are looking at ways to put more money into the system. The question is, 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 is it better to be a distant Ottawa running it, or is it better to be a provincial government running it? And this paper makes a pretty strong argument that provinces ought to be making these determinations, that provinces are the best placed to determine how to spend money to build more spaces. And if more money is going in, provinces ultimately ought to run that, even if, even if some of the money comes from a federal transfer. Yeah. And then this is the kind of issue, too, where this isn't, you know, sort of an abstract conversation about what childcare can look like over the next 10 years. I mean, we're talking about very real needs and probably very real needs, you know, that we're going to have to address even within this calendar year. Right. So do we need to think of it that way, that what are the changes that we can really act on quickly and have some measurable impact in the short term? You know, some of the data uh, is not conclusive on who got hurt the most. I'll, I'll be, I'll admit that up front. Sure. But I do think that that there's been, you know, there's been new rules put on childcare. There's no question that the amount of money going to childcare, uh, whether it's private delivery or nonprofit delivery or other kinds of delivery, that they've been severely strained over the last year, saw their income go down. And I think there's a lot of uh, correctly placed worry that as we come out, as I say, as we move out of our homes and back into our offices, that a lot of the childcare spaces that were there in January of 2020 are not going to be there in in uh, in September of 2021. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point on all of this. Well, again, you lay it out uh, really well, and it's as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are aspects of this paper where you're getting two different opinions, which I think is important in, in facilitating this conversation. CDHow.org is the website, and uh, folks can read the paper for themselves. Ken, really appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Always good to be on the show, Rob. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Ken Boston Cool, one of the authors uh, of this paper. And, um, you know, yeah, like I said, I think they put some really interesting ideas on the table. You can read more at cdhow.org. Ken is a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, also J.W. McConnell, professor of practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.